Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the journey of commercial discovery, the only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Today we're talking with Sally-Ann Williams, the Chief Executive at uh, Cicada Innovations, of course, the pioneering deep tech incubator based in Sydney. Welcome, Sally-Ann. Hi. And we're also talking to Bronwyn LeGrice, CEO of AMD Health. Welcome, Bronwyn. Hi, James. How are you? I'm very well. Now, you guys are both very well known in the sort of, for want of a better term, tech and innovation space. You're both on, well, have been on, or are currently on uh, different boards of directors in the ecosystem. You recently came out with a suggestion to government, I'm sure gentle, knowing you two, that uh, we've got to stop in this country uh, innovation theatre and uh, be a little bit more patient with the kinds of innovation or tech or translation that we're trying to achieve. So I wonder who wants to take this to start. What are we talking about when we're talking about innovation theatre? Um, I'll jump in there because I think I'm I probably threw that term at Sally Ann once and she jumped on board and said, that's a great one. Um, I really think it's innovation should be funded, but I think we all need to look beyond things like metrics of numbers of startups and some of the metrics that we use to measure government funding programs. And for us, it's all about, we can talk about innovation for a very long time, but real innovation in deep tech, health technology specifically, these are areas of endeavour which we know because in Australia and speaking with a health lens, we have a world-leading health and medical research sector. This type of innovation and this type of transformational product development, it takes time. And so when we look at supporting that innovation, we, we need to have a longer-term lens and it needs to not be about how many people attended the workshop that we ran and more about how many companies have gone from 2 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 40 and so on, employees, how many people have achieved regulatory approvals for their products in global markets, how many people are partnering with major corporates. Let's start looking at those impacts and really looking at the economic impact, the deep economic impact of innovation over a sustained period of time versus constantly talking, and I'm known for my cynicism about unicorns, constantly talking about what I call unicorns and fairy dust, which is you know focusing on valuations over value and talking about numbers of startups, but 5,000 startups, and some of them might be one person and it might be a side gig and they may not actually ever get there. Let's start talking about innovation in the way, and Sally-Ann will talk about their, the report that they just published, but innovation in a way that's not just transforming Australia's economy, but is transforming the world's technology and access to technology and quality of life, at least in the healthcare space. So, Sally-Ann, let's hear from you and uh, the the study that that you've done and from your point of view, very much from a deep tech perspective. Yeah. So, look, I echo all of those sentiments that Bronwyn's brought forward. I think one of the real challenges that we have in this sector, and it's a sector that's actually been driven by media cycles, and it's been driven by this on access, always on, on demand content, constant, constant feeding of digital news and updates. So we've actually moved from being a society, you know, 20, 30 years ago that actually had to think really deeply about some of our problems and some of our policies and set a really long-term agenda for reform and transformation to a group of a, a society where, where we're looking for that quick win and that quick buzz and we're looking for a dopamine hit that makes us feel as, just as good as when we're scrolling through endlessly on our phone with, you know, endless scrolling facilities. And the reality is if we're wanting to solve some of the world's most pressing 
pressing problems. And these are problems in, you know, food, they're in health, they're in agriculture, they're in energy, they're in sustainability, they're in accessibility. We can't solve these with a click. We can't solve them in a short-term fix. And we certainly can't solve them with just yet another demo day and yet another new idea. And yet there's this real trend probably over the last, I would say, 10 years, particularly in Australia, but even globally, where if we're going to do something innovation, there seems to be this view that it must be new, that it must be yet another accelerator program or yet another program. And we can't do the thing that's been done before. We only want to fund new ideas, not things that are actually proven to work. And what's really flawed about that is actually when we're talking about proven to work, most people are looking at what I call vanity metrics. And vanity metrics are those huge numbers. They're the unicorn valuations. Evaluation is just evaluation. It's not necessarily value that's been returned yet to the shareholders or being returned to society at large. So, you know, we've got vanity metrics and we've got impact metrics. And impact metrics, unfortunately, are less sexy. They tend to be lower numbers, but they're numbers that actually Actually, when you look at them and unpack them, have much more significance to people and planet and prosperity. And so by that, it's a, the report that we put out last year, Australia's Deep Tech Opportunity. We looked at some of these value additive metrics. And what we said was, you know, for every dollar that a deep tech company returns, there's an, an extra $3 return to customers, to business and to society at large. So the actual value of the business is not what it's valued at or what its profit line looks that it's actually what is its cost saving into society you know what is it doing for people what is it doing for others so let me give you an example and I think this is a really interesting company I'm going to give you an example in the healthcare tech sector and this is a hardware and a software product so you know it's something we can both speak to but if I think about the value of a company like Loop Plus one of our residents and they they have a sensor mat and a, an app on a device to help people who are living in wheelchairs monitor their health in real time and respond to it to actually avoid complications in health, scoliosis in the spine, pressure sores, all of these things, right? There's a value to that company of getting sales. There's a value to them to raising capital, to getting traction and to selling locally and overseas. But actually, it's $2.2 billion in our healthcare system that they can alleviate $2.2 billion annually for pressure sores, for hospitalisation around pressure sores every single year. Where is that metric when we're thinking about what we're investing in and what kind of programs we're standing up? And so when we think about value, we actually have to redefine it. And I think it's really critical. We're coming into, you know, elections are going to be coming up. We've got budgets coming really soon. We've got to stop trying to get that quick win with a headline and with, you know, that first news cycle, the first 48 hours in the next seven days and go, what policy levers are we putting in place and what settings are we putting in place that in 20 years' time are going to be benefiting the children that are in high school today, that are in university today, they are going to be providing jobs and opportunity for them, but also providing, you know, health and well-being benefits for people and planet. And I think that critical conversation needs to be a long-term view. It needs to be under the hood. We need to not be sort of just going at the shallow end and swimming in the shallows, but go in deep and understand both the risk and reward. But I would actually argue that the reward is so much more than a valuation and just a financial reward. And if we can get that right, we're actually going to set up a bit of a flywheel of what real innovation is in Australia and how we actually do it collectively together in collaboration, like Bronner and I, our organisations work together all of the time. It's not a competition because there's so much work to be done. We're only better if we do it together. 
Okay. There's uh, Look, there's a bunch of things to un- unpack there. I think metrics is obviously an important component of this discussion. But first, I suppose I wanted to ask, we're talking about this innovation theory. I guess you're talking about some of the, the shinier startups, for want of a better term. Surely, I mean, there's nothing wrong with funding programs that support those guys, is there? I mean, when we talk about you know, valuations and like that's financiers and VCs doing what financiers and VCs do. Is this an either or situation or are you simply saying that with impact investing that needs to be government led or it's more particularly dependent on particular government policy? I might I might jump in, James. So um, I'm clearly not saying that programs that support startups and scale-ups shouldn't be supported because then I'd be out of a job and I'd have to come to you and apply for a new job chairing another podcast. What I think we're saying here is that we need to start looking at the programs that government do fund. We need to start looking at areas with potential growth in them. Everyone knows that I have a particular bent for digital health and connected health systems that are clinical grade. But, you know, when we talk about what we do at And Health compared to a standard accelerator program that's curriculum-based and we talk about metrics, we measure the number of patients impacted by the 10 companies we incubated over 140,000. We talk about the number of clinical trials they run. We talk about how many jobs they've created. But what I think we're saying is my view on government policy is there is this tendency to say, we funded that program for a year and you're now not self-sustaining. And they don't care if we've impacted 150,000 patients or 140,000 patients. But where we need to invest, and I'm going to put a VC hat on here, so a lot of this innovation stuff that's come out by state and federal level across Australia in the past 10 years, probably with Dalian's kind of metric, has been focused on we need more companies. VCs need more deal flow. Now, VCs don't need more companies. Most VCs would do at least 300 meetings a year, if not more. Even the small teams do that kind of quantum of meetings. They need better quality deal flow, better investment opportunities. That doesn't mean more of them. That means better ones. That means less fragmentation at the angel investment stage. It means more capital efficient investment in the earlier stages. It also means programs that are proven to scale companies to an investable point are the ones we should be backed. We shouldn't be trying to create more companies. We should be trying to take all the talent we've got and make sure that talent is being deployed around really, really viable technology. So I, I think it's actually we need the programs that support them because it's simply not feasible. If a startup had to pay us for the services we deliver, it would be north of $400,000 of services that we deliver and we deliver them. At, and that's at a cost basis. That's not a cost plus basis. And it doesn't include the annual team's expertise. So that's not viable. But as an economy, we look at those impact metrics and Sally Ann's got even more of them, what is the value of 228 jobs? What is the value of 10 companies generating another 20 million of revenue? What is the impact of 39 clinical studies on the healthcare system and the access of patients to cutting edge technology? I feel like policy recently, and and it has ebbed and flowed and it's been in one week and out the next, it's forgetting what innovation is all about, which is sustained long-term economic growth and international competitiveness. And in my mind, that is about funding the programs that can say, here is our proven track record of delivering impact. You know, just like investors, like entrepreneurs that have done it before, governments should be looking for people that have done it before, that have a track record, and then say, how do we take the skills and expertise in you people, like Cicada, 20-year history of building 
amazing companies. How do we take what you do, Sally Ann, and help deploy that model across multiple sectors? How do we take the and health non-profit industry-led collaboration model and deploy that in ag or space or other things? We've got all these proven models. Instead of creating new ones, I believe government should look at, and it's arguably self-interest, but look at the programs that have delivered and then back them. And it's not about picking winners. It's about objective assessment of what people have done before, just like any other investment house would do. So, Sally-Ann, you, you would be on board this idea that it's uh, government short-termism or, I mean, maybe short-termism doesn't quite cover it because you are quite right. In some programs, they do get shut down when funding dries up, even though some of them, you know, from the outside at least, certainly look like they're doing very well. Yeah, I think this is the biggest struggle that we have, right, is really looking at what does it take to actually deliver something truly innovative into this ecosystem, a product or a service or something like that. And when you actually look at it, it's 20 to 30 years and there's this mythology that a successful company is built overnight, be it software or not, right? Even our software companies, everyone's like Canva, the overnight success, Atlassian, the overnight success. Pretty sure not overnight. If you actually look at when they're incorporated, we're in double digits of years, right? And there's a hard slog, but we don't talk about that. We like to mythologize it and we like to, you know, say that every startup that is getting up on a demo day stage around the world, you know, is going to be successful. Well, the reality is they're not. And and I think what we need to do is actually tell the hidden stories and the hard stories. So last year, COVID was fascinating, right? COVID was a fascinating year to see what was disrupted and what wasn't. And to my great surprise, at the beginning of the year, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to lose some of our residents. You know, we've got 44 companies resident right now employing 450 people. We're possibly going to lose some. They're possibly going to fold because this is deep tech. It's hard. There's hardware, there's software, there's life sciences, there's wet labs, there's clean rooms, there's electronics, you know. This is components of all the kind of companies that are in here. And yet we came out of the year with every single company still intact and actually about 85% of them growing significantly and well over 100, 100 and I think $10 million raised by our companies and one exit exiting on the ASX last year, one of our health companies. So, you know, we had this phenomenal year where the aha moment hasn't translated into yet into full public policy around deep tech and deep tech jobs and how resilient they are because they are actually solving problems that haven't evaporated and haven't gone away. Cancer's gone nowhere. You know, the need to feed people sustainably has gone nowhere. The need for clean and reliable and renewable energy hasn't gone anywhere. Those problems still exist. So these companies have marched on and yet we still have these debates about public policy, about what the RDTI, you know, should look like and who's in and who's out. And, you know, software is a part of it. Every single company here has a software component to it, as well as a hardware component and maybe a biologics component to it as well. You know, we're still having conversations about whether we should be investing in this space or not. And I'm like, we need to look at it. If we want a space sector in this country, if we want a med tech sector in this country, you know, if we really want these to be fueling future economic growth and economic opportunity, let's talk about those jobs of the future. We have to make sure that we put policy levers and settings in place and long-term vision and investment about how we stitch everything together. There's a real challenge at a policy level as well where we still operate in silos. So if you have a company that deals in something that has to do with both health and food, which minister do you talk to? And by the way, you've got software underpinning it and data and, you know, people's information potentially. So which minister do you go to? I've already got three that I now need to speak through on some of these things. And so 
I think there's this vision, I often say there's this kind of narrative, you know, without a vision, people kind of perish. We don't have anywhere to go. We swirl. What we need is this real vision about what we can be and what we should be as society and really line up behind it and go, you know what, recognise that, yep, that's where we want to go. But to get there, it's going to take sustained investment and sustained vision. Every other country around the world, developed country I see, has doubled down on science and technology and engineering-based businesses and investments in research. They're multinationals and the companies that are operating in, you know, the UK, in the EU, in the US are investing in research. They're investing in development. They're investing in long-term vision because they know that they need it for economic sustainability, both from a government lens, but an industry lens. And yet we are still so far behind on those things. And yeah, you know, I want to make sure that what we're doing is leaving a legacy for the people that I haven't even seen born yet. So, look, can I ask you this, both of you this, we've got a budget coming up, there's decisions have got to be made around uh, where we allocate our resources. Josh Frydenberg has uh, been telling everyone it won't be an austerity budget, there'll be money splashed around. Firstly, how confident are you that uh, there'll be a change of heart and a little bit more money spread over the deep tech ventures? And secondly, when we talk about government and the seeming reluctance in this country to really get behind some of the deep tech ventures, like is that a, is that a cultural issue? Is it an Australian cultural issue? Is it an Australian government cultural issue? Not sure who wants to go first. I'm going to jump in on that last one really quickly. I think it's really interesting when you look at where people come from who are leading in both government, like what their qualifications and their background experiences in both a government and a policy perspective. And I would say what we're lacking in Australia is lots of people from an engineering and science background in leadership. And not just in leadership and politics, but actually in a lot of corporates as well and corporate Australia. And I don't think it's not that STEM degrees are more important than anything else, but they do bring a different lens and a perspective on long-term solutions and problem solving. And so I think we need to see a little bit of change and transformation in that space. I think what I'd love to see in the budget, I mean... Whether we see, we've started to see movements around modern manufacturing. I think we need to actually understand we're not going to have a manufacturing industry without a deep tech industry as well, and that includes health tech. So we actually have to start stitching these things together and understand the interconnectedness of it. And I would hope that government policy and programs would start to do that instead of operating sometimes in silos and state-based silos versus federal silos. Let's just stitch it together. We are one country. We are only 24 million people. Come on. We've got to compete internationally. But I think the one other thing I want to say, and this is a little bit of a divergent, but we need to make policy settings that actually enable more people into employment and into supporting employment because that's actually going to unlock more assets and more opportunities. And so alongside of the deep tech things, I think fundamental policies that enable women to be employment and supported into employment is also going to make a transformational step change for the long term. And we've just stopped talking about it. Just get it done. You know, childcare, just get it done. Parental leave, get it done. It's ridiculous that we're still having a conversation about it. It's it's a no-brainer when we actually know and every economist out there, regardless of where they work, will tell you that those fundamental levers that if we flip them will actually enable future economic growth and prosperity in a way that other things don't. And I, the discussion doesn't need to be had anymore. It's just time to get the work done. And Roman, you're about to jump in there, I think. Well, as a somebody who started my business six weeks before my first daughter was born, I'd probably echo the workforce participation piece and the macroeconomic policy levers. Like we are an internationally 
we're a trading nation, so we need internationally competitive levers. We need to also, I think, stop seeing international companies partnering in Australian companies or coming into Australia as bad because you can often benefit greatly from having those international operators here. In terms of budget, to Sally's point, I think the Modern Manufacturing Initiative was a big announcement. It's a really weird budget, right, because the last budget was in October. So I keep having to poke myself and remind myself there's a budget because I feel like I've only just recovered from the last one. But modern manufacturing to me, you know, my deep concern around all the and this manufacturing kind of strategies in at state levels as well is that they're silent on software. And if I look at healthcare, nobody is manufacturing non-connected medical devices in 2021, right? We can't manufacture the products of the future without a strong software industry. It's a really unusual thing to be saying when you come from a medical research kind of commercialization background like me. So where is software in this? Not just software in terms of connected medical devices that may need clinically validated and regulated software, but in the software that runs those manufacturing floors and the robotics. There's all these aspects of if you want a modern manufacturing sector, there's a big software piece in that. And it does feel silent on software. I don't even represent the software industry, but that concerns me. We've actually seen in my own little tiny microcosm of clinical grade digital health some quite big changes within the frameworks of this government. So we saw a medical research future fund has actually accepted and put in place a digital health stream in their latest commercialisation funding round. I couldn't have imagined that three years ago. So I'm seeing, I guess in my little world, I've seen quite a lot of progress being made in terms of companies and grant programs being a bit more amenable to digital health versus demanding the kind of patent-heavy, IP-heavy credibility um, and academic-led initiatives that we've seen in, in grant programs traditionally. So I've seen a shift in this budget. I want to see workforce participation, but I want to see these long-term innovation plays. So to Sally Ann's point, Every company and everyone, I, you know, I hear this all the time. Oh, but digital health is faster and cheaper to market than med tech. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. 10 to 15 years. You look at any international case study, we've run about 40. 10 to 15 years. Randomized control trials, it doesn't matter if it's a drug or a digital health technology, a multi-country randomized trial is going to take you three years. You can't just abbreviate the time frame. So I want to see this commitment to innovation and this commitment to and moving away from jargon like startups and unicorns and stuff to we want to build the high growth potential businesses of the future because they're businesses. They're not startups. They're businesses, high growth potential businesses of the future. And we're going to commit money to that. Okay. Look, uh, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to start winding up, but I do have a couple of other things I wanted to ask. Talking to Bronwyn LeGrose from and Health and Sally Ann Williams from Cicada Innovations. This one's probably for you first, Sally Ann. Larry Marshall's been talking about setting up you know, national commercialization hubs or floating this idea. And I guess, you know, in effect, that's what CSIRO was supposed to be or is supposed to be. Cicada Innovations, you have education institutions as your uh, shareholder base. When we talk about research translations, what would you put on your wish list from government, either state or federal? to enable a more successful translation of institutional research into commercial enterprise? 
Oh, that's a big one. I think the biggest one is that we actually understand the breadth and the depth of understanding. At the moment, I think what government wants and what I've seen, you know, is this idea of one size fits all. So we should expect universities to do absolutely everything from education to fundamental research to translation to commercialization, that we should expect the same of the CSIRO, that we should expect the same of other organizations. And the reality is we shouldn't. What we really need to do is understand what each entity does and what specialist skills and capabilities bring to the table and then actually increase the hyper-connectedness between what they do and what somebody adjacent to them does. So obviously we're owned by four university shareholders. That's fabulous. We run a self-sustaining business. We work closely with CSIRO. We work closely with 3061. We work closely with industry. We work with anyone and everyone, but we know what we do well. And that is the commercialization piece. It's actually building those businesses and handholding them from that single founder for the 10 to 15 years to be that overnight success. So I think what we really want government to do is recognise that and actually go, you know what, we're funding collaborations between these two. We're funding the pathway. We talk about, um, you know, there's that phrase that it takes a village to raise a child. It actually takes an, an ecosystem to raise a startup. So how do we take that nascent idea, regardless of where it emerges from, and connect it with what it needs, when it needs it, at the right time, and then also pass it on to whoever needs it next and support it next? All right, can I just jump in there before we go to you, Bronwyn? In the case of Cicada Innovations, obviously very successful over a long period of time, 20 years in the making. Was it 21 this year? I can't, can't, can't recall. I mean, is it possible to take Cicada Innovations and plant it in Melbourne with four different university shareholders or the same four shareholders? Like, I mean, there's a lot of kind of you know politics around this area. There's a lot of you know, vested interest. There's all, all of these things those institutions are in themselves very powerful. So how do you replicate what you've done? You know what? I think we have to recognise is what is the success of what we do and the community and the strengths that we bring together. And our strengths are actually our greatest assets, which are community. And that includes our shareholders, but it actually includes many more people that are outside of our shareholders and that are in industry and, and our mentors. Not every company, most of our companies here are not spin-outs from universities or from CSIRO. They're actually people that have left industry with an idea and have landed in here. That's actually okay. Innovation is not on a linear spectrum. You don't go and do your fundamental research, come up with an idea, you know, register your IP and then actually come along the path to start a company. Actually, it's much more messy than that. But when I look at the value and how an ecosystem really works, and if I look at the microcosm that we are, you know, what it looks like and how university collaboration or CSIRO collaboration fits in is it with a company like SpeedX paying and putting four people through industry-based PhDs because the value is both to the university, it's to fundamental research and it's to translation in situ in that business. It's the number of interns that come into the programs here and come into all of the companies here. It's the contract research that gets done. It's the people participating in CRCs. It's the in-hospital clinical trials that are happening around the space. It's all of those connections and collaborations. And if we actually value that, that number and that value is actually, that is much, much higher and a much better return on investment, so to speak, or a return on participation to our university shareholders, to CSIRO and to others. And so we've got to we've got to break down some of this mythology about this linear thing that every single thing that happens in research is going to be able to be translated and commercialized. Actually it's not, but if we actually look at what the problem we're trying to solve is and it come from a different lens, how can we pull in those pieces and those aspects to the right 
group of people, the right company, and then nurture it in a really like, I mean, our incubation, 10, 15 years, you know, that's the one smelly set of eggs in an incubator. It's a long-term process. So we actually have to think about it in a different way and look at the value that we're greater than the sum of our parts sort of things. I think the discussion about deep tech, I mean, as we said, you've been going for a long time, but the discussion in very recent times, I'm talking about in the COVID period, seems to have matured somewhat and somewhat more mainstream. Bronwyn LeGrice, we'll start to wind up with you. Same question I put to Sally Ann, I guess, around what's the one thing, state or federal, that you would like to see to get things moving? As a really young, early 20s, I heard this, we're great at science, we're crap at commercialisation for 20 years. It's really exhausting. So just a few comments. One is innovation has a failure rate. We really just need to suck it up and get comfortable with it. Like, come on, folks. Not everything will succeed. Not everything should succeed. And if it's not going to succeed, we should be very good at swiftly taking it out the back and putting it out of its misery. The second piece is if we want to change that metric and to Larry Marshall's comment about national commercialisation centres, if we want to change that metric, why are we still funding the same structures? So we're saying we're crap at commercialisation and great at science, but we still, a lot of our funding structures haven't changed in those 20 years either, right? So, you know, and I'm not casting aspersions on this program as a whole. It's been highly, highly productive for Australia. But we talk about cooperative research centres. Why don't we talk about cooperative commercialisation centres? So we talk to government, we say we have a model, and we've we've had this conversation, we have a model for cooperative commercialisation that is proven. It brings to play global corporates with universities, with small Australian service providers, with large Australian players such as Planet Innovation and RMIT, and we've got Novartis and we've got Potential X, we've got these big to small companies wrapping themselves around digital health commercialisation. There is utterly no reason why I can't sit down with a team out of a different sector or even a different part of health and teach them how to do, create a non-profit, industry growth-driven cooperative commercialisation centre in an area of expertise. And the joy of that is none of us know everything about the sector. So when you put everyone in the room, we can come up with really smart commercialisation outcomes and really smart advice for those companies because it's multi-sectoral. It's not a, to Sally-Ann's point, it's not linear, but but also if we're so bad at commercialisation, and God help me, if I hear that, if I see the same slide and hear the same words again after, you know, in, in another five years, I may just have to leave Australia and go and find a small island and live in isolation because we're still funding the same structures. So if we want to change it, fund it differently. It's really simple. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different outcomes. Right. Well, look, of course, there are many paths to uh, getting to the good stuff. I want to thank you both for joining me on the commercial disco, Sally-Ann Williams from Cicada Innovations and Bronwyn LeGrice from And Health. Sorry, Bronwyn, I'll just add this idea of a uh, cooperative commercialisation centres. You know, even a change of name can have a big impact. Language has power. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it goes to you've, culture. You've just given me my my rebrand, Cicada Innovations, Cooperative Commercialization Centre. Oh, it's pretty much I always trademarked it. But <laughs> I do I, I also do like the fact that people are like we're having this discussion today, are talking about research with, you know, passion and gusto, but talking about research commercialization or research impact as opposed to the research itself. And I think that's been a cultural issue in Australia that, you know, potentially held us back from some of the better commercial outcomes that might have come. On that 
Thank you very much for joining us on the Commercial Disco. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.